Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to episode number five of my brand new podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to episode number five of my brand new podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? Well, I'm just going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, I'm a 22-year-old songwriter slash producer, and I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each week with this podcast, I review one song by one artist from the 60s, and first talk about my opinion on the song, and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and then do my own personal analysis on the record, and the arrangement of the song, which may include the chords and melody and lyrics for the song, and then dig deep into the history behind the record, which will include who wrote it, who produced it, and who played on it, and all the juicy behind the scenes details on the group and the song I talk about each week and all the people and places involved in the making of the record. So basically, that's what this podcast is all about. Basically, give you guys a millennial's perspective on classic music from the 60s, which can differ from someone who was there at the time and was listening to this music when it was brand spanking new and popular. But really, I'm also trying to educate people around my age on this great music and turn them on the stuff they may have never heard before and teach them about these groups so that way they will learn something about the people that made these records come to life. Since I firstly done my own research on a lot of these records, I gained quite a lot of knowledge on this very specific decade of music, and you'll see that within each episode of this podcast. Moving on, let's get started on this week's song, shall we? Okay, so I'm gonna the song I'm going to be reviewing this week, it's definitely not a happy one, but the lyrics might resonate with you. It's a song about a man who deeply regrets his past actions and loses someone he truly cares about. The song came out in February of 1966. It's by a group called Gary Liston and the Playboys. It's none other than You're Gonna Miss Her. Man, this is such a great song for so many reasons. First of all, the arrangement of this tune is just fantastic. I love the mariachi horns and that beautiful flamenco acoustic guitar. But really, that major one to minor one chord change in the beginning, middle, and the end of the song just makes it sound really good. And both instruments pull back and pull in when there is no lead vocal. And one really subtle thing about this record to add more depth within the production is the harmony of the hook of the song, which is sure going to miss her. And the bass line on the record also really sticks out, and you can tell that the bass player used a pick on the record, and it really melds perfectly with the keyboard part in the recording. Also, I love the ascending and descending chord change in the verse, and when the song goes into F major in the bridge, that definitely gives it a Latin feel for the song. I honestly feel like this particular record stands heads and shoulders with what the Beatles are putting out at around this time, both harmonically and sonically as well. Let's talk about what the song is about lyrically, because the song is so heartbreaking, but you might have gone through what the singer has gone through. The singer talks about what he didn't do to try to keep his girlfriend from leaving him, and when he finally realizes the mistakes he made or things they didn't do when he was with her that he probably should have done when they were together, she leaves him for another man. It's even more heartbreaking when the singer sees her with a new new guy that she has found towards the end of the song. The, it's one of those songs that plays with the concept of you don't realize what you have until it's gone. 
And he talks about when they were together, he never told her uh, he loves her, and he never told her words of love. And then when the girl leaves her, he's like, well, I'm sure going to miss her now that she's gone with another man. Now, before we move on the history behind this specific band, if you're listening to this episode of the show and you're around my age, and again, I'm 22, the best way to prove to you that you could relate to this song, and it's not just only for people that grew up with this specific uh, decade of music 50 years ago and were alive when this music came out and it was popular and brand new, is to draw a comparison with this specific song to, uh, to a pop song came out fairly recently. And while the song came out in 2012, and I know what you're thinking, Sam, 2012 is seven years ago. It's not totally 100% recent, but that's besides the point. I mean, if you're a millennial, you should be old enough to remember 2012 and old enough to remember the songs that were popular and were on the charts in that year. The point I'm trying to make is that the song I'm going to talk about that came out in 2012 and the 60 song I'm reviewing today's episode of the show are lyrically about the exact same thing. The song I'm referring to is When I Was Your Man by Bruno Mars. In that song, Bruno talks about how much he regrets not doing what he thought he should have done when he was with his girl and is now sad and lonely because the girl is now with another guy. Hmm, does that concept sound familiar to you? Well, if you haven't already connected the dots by now, you would have picked up the song as lyrically has the same lyrical concept as You're Gonna Miss Her by Gary Lewis and the Playboys. And that song's from 1966. And that, my friends, is proof that it doesn't really matter how old the specific song is, that lyrical concepts like that are still going to hit people home, will still be relatable to people 50 years later, and regardless of what era we are living in. And then a song from the 60s can still be relatable to young people in today's world, and it's not just only for something people that were alive back then that could connect to and relate to. And that and that song by Bruno Mars made top 10, and so did the song we're reviewing in this episode of my podcast. And this song is also proof that other bands from the 60s, other than the Beatles and the Stones and the Beach Boys and Jimi Hendrix, and the obvious examples of groups from that era could achieve this kind of longevity with their music. But enough talking about the song, let's talk about the group that did the song, because you might not know about this band at all, but one thing's for sure, they had a really interesting history. They were founded by the son of a world-famous comedian known as Jerry Lewis named Gary Lewis. But at the time, most people didn't know that they were related in heck. Jerry didn't even know that his own son had a band until, he first, until their first hit record came out in 1965. But it was Gary Lewis that put this band together with David Walker and David Costello on guitar, Alan Ramsey and Carl Radle on bass, and John West on keyboards. Gary oftentimes played drums and also sang Lee on all of his records. They were discovered after their first professional gig playing at Disneyland, and they were signed to Liberty Records by Liberty A&R man slash producer Snuff Garrett. Their first hit record was This Diamond Ring, was written by Al Cooper, Bob Brass, and Erwin Levine, and first recorded by Sammy Ambrose, and they were originally intended as a mid-tempo New York R&B record, similar to what the Drifters were putting out at the time. After Gary Lewis heard the demo version of the song, he liked it and they went into Western Recorders on Sunset to record the song with Snuff Garrett producing and Leon Russell arranging, and they turned the record into a white Beatles pop rock song. One thing I want to talk about here is that 50 years ago, completely unlike today, it wasn't terribly uncommon for a band to not play on their own records in the studio but not live and in concert. This was often done because the producer didn't think that the band was were good enough musicians to record and didn't have the timing or the sight-reading skills to cut hit singles efficiently and relatively quickly without having to spend hours and hours of studio time and money. 
Many bands from this era dealt with this issue, including ones like The Monkees, The Association, Gary Pocking Unity Gap, and The Grassroots, and several others. This concept might be unheard of to you, and if it were to happen today, it would definitely not be acceptable in today's society, but it wasn't an uncommon occurrence back then. And if you think about it, if these bands didn't play on their own records, who were the musicians on their recordings? Well, this leads me to talk about an elite group of professional studio musicians that were pretty much on everybody's hit records in Los Angeles between the years 1958 and 1975. These guys could walk into the studio accurately lead from the charts that were given to them in the beginning of the session, create their own parts and add to the arrangements, cut the tracks in two or three takes for each song, do four songs in three hours, sign the contracts and get paid and then move on to the next session. This this may seem unheard of today considering how long recording music can take in today's world. And trust me, it can take a very long time. But that's just how they did it back then. These artists signed to these, to these major labels had to commit to a release schedule, and these singles had to be made quickly, so they turned to the only people slash musicians that producers and A&R guys could rely on to get these records made quickly. These people were collectively known as the Wrecking Crew. I'll talk more about the Wrecking Crew in another episode of this podcast, but to connect the dots and answer the question of what does the Wrecking Crew have to do with Gary Lewis and the Playboys? Well, when Seth Garrett, the group's producers, went to the studio to record the band for their first single, he wanted to make absolute 100% certain that the song would be hit, so he brought in members of the Wrecking Crew to overdub on top of the members of the Playboys. These musicians include Tommy Alsup and Mike Deasy on guitar, Leon Russell on piano, Joe Osborne on bass, and Hal Blaine on drums. But I, I wanted to make something clear with you. The band did play on all the rec- all the records they put out because the members of the band appear on the original AFM, American Federation of Musicians, a union that managed the recording sessions for these major label records contracts. But their producer, Snuff Garrett, used a wrecking crew, who were the studio musicians in L.A. at the time, to play on top of what the band was already doing in the studio. On this specific record, Tommy Sesco, who was a first call guitar player in L.A. at the time this record came out, played a flamenco acoustic guitar on the track. While the members of the Playboys, Carl Radel played bass, and Tommy Triplehorn played organ, and David Walker played guitar. And while we're at it, let's talk about who wrote the song and the origins of it. It was written by Bobby Russell, who was a very successful Nashville-based songwriter, and he recorded it first with the band that recorded cover songs of already famous hit songs at discounted prices. It was released as a B-side of a cover they did of a Four Seasons song, and Bobby Russell sang lead on the original track, and the name of the group was The Cellos. Bobby Russell will later go on to write such hit songs such as Little Green Apples and Honey. But one more thing I wanted to mention to you about the Playboys is that they were the only other American group from the 60s other than Eleven Spoonful to have their first eight releases make the top ten on the Billboard charts. And sooner or later, Gary Lewis got drafted and was sent to Vietnam, and that quickly ended the success of the band. And by the time he had gone back to the States, the hits had dried up for the group, and he and they broke up, but he still continues to tour to this day. So that concludes episode number five of my brand new podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I hope you guys enjoyed my analysis in the record and found the information I talked about in this week's episode of the podcast about the group I mentioned interesting. And if you did, please shoot me an email at sam at hickeywilliams.com. And also, 
Please follow me on Instagram at iHeartOldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. And again, that's samwilliamsmusic.net. And also, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review for it from wherever you're listening to it from. And also, stay tuned for when exactly the interview with Chris Montez will happen, because I still don't know when it's going to happen. I'm still waiting to hear back from him in terms of when we're actually going to do it. So, like I said before, I'll let you all know when that happens, and I will announce that as soon as I hear back from him. I'm Sam Williams, and thanks for joining me for this week's episode of the podcast. Until next week, please keep things groovy.